Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Man, amen. Woo. Hey guys, uh, my name is Spence, one of the pastors here at Mercy Church. If you have your Bible, get it out, Judges chapter 3. Um, and as you're going over to Judges chapter 3, um, I want to take a quick survey of the room. How many of you in here are left-handed? Raise that left hand proud. How many lefties in the room? Yep, listen, if that's you, you are in elite company. Barack Obama, Oprah Winfrey, Babe Ruth, Leonardo da Vinci, Jimi Hendrix, and Ned Flanders, all lefties. In fact, did you know that tomorrow is International Left-Handers Day? This started back, that's right, yes, we all band together, started back in 1976 as a way to promote awareness to the rest of the world for all the inconveniences and hardships that lefties go through in life, right? Things like, uh, the simplest things like zippers, you know, with the flap, it's really hard for lefties, or the button shirts, or the fact that there's always like 400 options for a righty to buy. Take like my son's left-handed, and you know, we go glove shopping for a baseball glove, and there's like 400 options for the righties, and then it's like, here's the lefty glove, if you want to buy that, you know? So um, you righties are like, what? I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah, I know. That's privilege of living in a right-handed world. Um, listen, historically, left-handedness has been treated as a weakness, even in how like, languages will use, come up with words for left-handed. So the Greek word, skios, it means ill-omened if you're a left-hander, right? The Latin word for left is just evil. That's what it means, okay? Um, Italian, mancino, means crooked or maimed. Australian, okay, this is, um, I actually got a guy coming to our church who's from Australia, so he let me know this is um, probably a previous generation, so about 50 years ago, they used this. Um, they used the term molly duker. Okay, here's what that, let me break it down. Molly, as in a girl named Molly. Duker, as in your fists, where you duke it out. So a lefty is a guy that hits like a girl, right? And I'm like, how did you manage to insult all left-handers and all women in one word? That's our friends down down under, right? Um, believe it or not, left-handedness is going to play a big role today uh, for us in teaching us how God works in our world and in our lives. And here's what's going to happen. What's going to happen is left-handedness is going to be viewed by everyone in the story we're about to read as a sign of weakness. And then God is going to show us how he works through that weakness and works most powerfully through our weaknesses, so we're in Judges chapter 3, and our main character today is a Southpaw judge named Ahud. All right, that's our guy. So by the way, if you don't own a Bible, it is our joy um, to make sure that you have one. So we have one as a gift for you as soon as you go outside the doors on the right. I know, right-handed world, but on the right when you go out, um, there's some Bibles that we love to, love to give you. So here's what's going to happen. As we walk through chapter 3, you're gonna, we're going to break it into three sections in this chapter, and we're, I'm going to show you how God puts one very powerful truth on display all through it. What you're going to see repeated three times, once in each of these sections, is this main idea for today, and that is that weakness is our greatest strength. 
That's the thing you leave with today, okay? Weakness is our greatest strength. If you take notes, write it down. If you don't, I want you to plug that one in to your brain. Right now, it's just an idea, but we're gonna see it come up in the story three times, and then I'm gonna show you how we respond to God in light of this truth, but we'll get there. Let's get into the story, Judges 3, chapter one, or Judges 3, verse one, sorry. These are the nations the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had, who had experienced none of the wars in Canaan. Verse two is important. This was to teach, the, the reason these nations are still there in Canaan was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. And then let's go to verse four. The Lord left them there to test Israel, to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their fathers through Moses. Now, if you remember from last week, the reason that foreign nations were in the promised land, catch you up if you weren't here, the promised land is the land that God had set aside for Israel. So now they were supposed to go and conquer it and take it. But Israel kind of went in and then they got a little scared of all these enemies that were there. And so they stopped short of going into the battles and taking the land that God had given them. And that's what we saw last week was the reason that the foreign nations were still in this land is because God's people didn't trust God enough to go after it. But now we're seeing another angle on the situation. At the start of Judges 3, the author tells us another couple of reasons why these foreign nations are still in this land. The Lord left them there to test Israel and to, what, teach them how to fight in battle. Now, those are really one and the same thing, okay? Because the fight in battle, it's not like the Lord was teaching them new battle formations, like try the flying V in this battle, right? It's not what's What's happening? Instead, he's teaching them, when he says teaching them to fight, it means teaching them to trust him to give them the victory. And listen to me, the Lord leaving enemies in the land that will attack his people, that translates really well into your life and mine. Let me ask you, have you ever wondered why God doesn't just go ahead and cure us completely of sin? Like why we still battle with it? We trust him for salvation. Why not then and there just put an end to that? I mean, guys, just a little transparent moment. I keep thinking to myself, why do I keep acting selfish in my marriage? Because when I do, it causes me to hurt my wife, which causes her pain. It causes us conflict. But look, I know that that's not gonna end well. I know that the Bible says and God has said, I'm supposed to love her selflessly, just as God has loved me selflessly. I know this stuff, so how do I know all of that, yet still get here again where I'm acting selfish and causing pain and disaster in my marriage? Listen, part of why he allows us to continue to be affected by sin is to teach us that we gotta fight against these things in his strength and not in ours. We need the weakness that our inability to defeat sin on our own gives us. Now, y'all, we're diving in fast this morning. You gotta catch this. It's massively important for understanding what's happening today. That's how we learn to rely on his grace to get through the battle instead of relying on our own willpower. This is the first time in this chapter you're seeing our big idea, our willingness to be weak, to admit that we cannot defeat sin on our own. That's our greatest strength. Our willingness to be weak, that's our greatest strength because it forces us to rely on God's strength in the battle today, not on our own. Think about it, y'all. God right now might be allowing you to struggle with a lesser sin to keep you from a bigger one, namely pride. 
if you could just every time you encountered sin, oh, maybe I'm the only person that deals with sin in this room. It's not true. But listen, if you could just every time you approached sin, if you could defeat it the first time all on your own, you would be incredibly arrogant. You would. And that would ultimately lead to you thinking you didn't need God, which would lead to your disaster. Uh, There's a guy, if you know the song Amazing Grace, church song, was sung for hundreds of years. Um, the guy who wrote it, John Newton, he talked about this battle, saying that it was actually, the more he thought about it and he realized that it, he learned to find the real riches of God's mercies more in what he called the multiple pardons that he received for the same sin than he did as if he had never touched forgiveness at all. Because he found himself where he's like, I can't believe I'm back here again, back dealing with this thing again. Yet, down there in the frustration of that same sin, I'm finding God's mercy again. And it was rich and good to him. God didn't keep the Canaanites in the land so that Israel would just be like, well, I'm never gonna get over this. No, he kept them so that they would learn to fight. So when you're tempted to despair because you continue to struggle, remember what God's doing in the fight. Look to Christ whose resurrection guarantees your victory over that. Look to Christ who fought for you even when you were his enemy. Look to Christ, the only Savior who can give you the strength to stand and who will pick you up every time you fall back into that. Listen, the second section of Judges 3 is going to go pretty quick. This is the story of our first judge, Othniel. Now, what's cool about this is it's actually going to serve as a recap for last week. So if you missed last week, you're going to catch it right here. You guys remember how we talked about the cycle of sin, this kind of repeated pattern that we see um, every time in Judges, going to be repeat on repeat for the whole book, it's clearest in Othniel's account. So here's what we'll do. You keep your Bible right there open to Judges 3, all right? I'm not gonna put the words on the screen. Instead, I'm gonna show you how these few verses bring up that cycle and walk through it, okay? And I'll have that on the screen. So here's verse seven. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord their God. This is what we said is the first step in this cycle is, forgetting the Lord. We call that spiritual amnesia. That's the first thing that happens in, when we get into the cycle of sin. And then what did they do? Verse seven continues, they worshiped the Baals and the Asherahs. That's disobedience. So they forget God and what do they do? They disobey God by worshiping a foreign God, someone else. Verse eight, the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to, to King Cushan Rishathim of Aram Naharam. I spent some time practicing that one this week, okay? And the Israelites served him eight years. What is that? They're enslaved to a foreign kingdom. That's disaster. That's disaster. And then after eight years, after eight years in slavery, finally, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. That's helplessness. I realize I can't get out of this on my own. I have nothing left. I can't defeat the sin on my own. I've made a disaster in my life. Lord, help. Cry out. That's helplessness. So the Lord raised up Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him, and he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle, and the Lord handed over King Cushan of Aram to him, so that Othniel overpowered him. That's deliverance. The Lord sends a deliverer who brings his people out of slavery. And then the land had peace for 40 years, and Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. That's the cycle. I want you to see a couple of things that have got to hit home with us. One that I only glanced over last week and I wanna dive in for a minute here. First it says, when it says Israel forgot God, when we say that, that first thing there, it's spiritual amnesia. What happens when we forget 
God, what it's saying, listen, it's not saying that Israel just like had their memory erased from an idea of God. He was still in their law and everything else. It's not like some men in black situation happened where it's like the red thing or and they just forget God in their memory. No, no. What's happened is that it's saying that Israel was no longer controlled in their decisions by what they knew about God from the law. They, listen, they still had the information, but it didn't carry weight with them anymore. And that problem exists among us today. We might know a lot of Bible stories in our heads, but our hearts aren't moved by the God that we see in those pages. Y'all, maybe this metaphor will help you. Our, our hearts, I heard a guy say this, are like buckets of water that are left outside in the cold on a, on a really cold day. And those buckets will freeze over unless we continually smash the ice that is forming. Listen, though we know the truths about God, we can just kind of let, we can kind of let God himself and the influence that he has on our heart just kind of fade into the background. And when that happens, it'll happen deep down, but then it'll be evidenced by a couple of things. Here's how you know, maybe this would be good for you, like, to put some handles on this. How do you know you're suffering from spiritual amnesia? How do you know that you might be forgetting God in your life? Well, the first way is that your sin doesn't bother you all that much anymore. You know it's sin. You just don't feel that bad about it anymore. That means the ice is freezing over your heart and it's becoming hard to the voice of God. Because listen, God's voice is a loving father who wants your best for you, but now all you see him as is a cold rule giver and you just kind of don't care. Sin isn't bothering you all that much because God doesn't matter to you all that much. And y'all, I wanna tell you, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. God does not promise to bring you back from there. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter three, two times, in like seven verses in chapter three, he says, listen, today, 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 if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did in the days of their rebellion. He's looking back to the Old Testament stories through the lens of the cross. And he's saying, please, don't harden your hearts like they did. It will lead to your disaster. Don't fall where they did. I am completely serious right now when I'm telling you, you better not leave this room today. If this is you, and this is what's going on, and you're like, man, my sin, I just don't feel that bad about it anymore. You should not leave this room until you tell somebody else, listen, my sin's just not bothering me like I know that it should. Will you please pray for me that God would warm my heart to him, that I would be affected by his grace again? You need to ask them to pray that God would start to melt that ice immediately. But here's the other way. Here's the other way you know if you're starting to forget God. You start to see other people sin before your own. Anybody resonate with that? When my heart grows cold to the person of God and to the work he's done in my life, all I'm left with are his rules. And so I start to measure myself primarily by my performance in keeping the rules. And I start to place value on other people based on how they measure up to the rules. So for you, forgetting God, listen, it looks like sitting down in a judgment seat that you were never meant to sit in. You conveniently forget how sinful you are, and you start judging people not by the whole law, just by a select portion 
of God's rules that you think you're pretty good at holding up to, right? Because if you, if you judge them by the whole law, you'd be in trouble too. You make quick judgments and you hold a grudge. And listen, it's probably a way you know this is it's hard for you to forgive other people. And the saddest thing about all that is it means that you've forgotten grace. Listen, people who know God, the God of the gospel, they look at someone and they don't, they don't measure them by how well they're doing in terms of obeying, disobeying. They look at them and they see a story. And they see a story that regardless of how messed up it might be, they see a story of what God could do in their lives to bring redemption and to bring his glory through it. And the reason they do that is because their first instinct is to think, I know I was a wreck and he has saved me. So I know that he can do that in your life too. And so I'm quick to forgive and quick to encourage. But if that's not you, maybe your heart is growing hard to the voice of God and you're starting to forget him. So a couple of questions. Does your sin bother you all that much? And do you find yourself judging others before yourself? Y'all, listen, the cure to spiritual amnesia, shockingly enough, it's training ourselves to remember our deliverance. This is a massively important concept, all right? The cure to keep you from forgetting God is to build in rhythms of remembrance, to remember that we are weak and helpless, and when we are weak, that's where Christ died for us. Listen, this is the second section in Judges 3, and once again, we're seeing that remembering our weakness, that's our greatest strength. Israel, when they're at their worst, they're enslaved, they can do nothing, that's when they go, help! And right there, where they're at their weakest, what does God do? He sends a deliverer. And by the way, God only saves through a deliverer. Everywhere in scripture, you got one way, it's a deliverer. So if you want God's grace, God's living power in your life, you gotta follow the savior to get it. And if you're recognizing that you've grown cold to God, listen, this morning, you're recognizing it. I've grown cold to God. I've started to forget him. You can cry out to the deliverer and he will rescue you today. Today, y'all, he, listen, Ephesians tells us that God sent Christ while we were still sinners. He didn't wait on you to clean yourself up. While we were still sinners, he loved us. The gospel said God loves you, God wants you, and the moment where you finally realize, where it starts to click, you realize how unworthy you are of God's love, that moment, right there, that's when God's love and God's power can pour over you like a waterfall. Disciplines of remembrance. Psalm 105 would be a great one for you to go look up and pray through this week. I'm not gonna go through it now, but what the psalmist does, he takes like seven verses and says, make sure to remember the Lord your God. And then he spends like 40 verses telling you how they are remembering, Israel's remembering what the Lord has done. Listen, why do, we, why do you think we have these weekly rhythms in the life of our church? We come in here and we sing. Why do we sing? It's to remember it's to stir the affections for the Lord and remember what he's done in us. That's why if you look at the lyrics of all of our songs, it's to remember the Lord our God. We sing about his character and about what he's done for us. When we take communion together, we are remembering the character of God and his great love for us. This is why preaching is a discipline of remembrance. Sometimes we talk about spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible, praying, coming to church, giving, sharing the gospel. We talk about like spiritual disciplines that if you do them, you check them off, you'll grow closer to God. We should probably think about them as like disciplines of remembrance, a way to stir your heart again, to warm your heart, to keep it from growing cold and forgetting God and instead remembering what the Lord your God has done for you. That's why, listen, 
I hope, y'all, we get, on average, what, four songs when we come in here and sing on the weekend? <laughs> yeah, I got done with this week. I was like, service is going to be two hours now. That's what I was, because I was like, man, all we get is a very limited time as a corporate body to encourage one another. So I hope you leave it all on the field. I better not be the only person sweating at the end of a Sunday morning worship gathering. I will be sweating. I'm just saying I don't want to be the only one, all right? And listen, I spend all this time here on this forget thing. Because what if, what if you didn't have to go through the disaster that your sin is going to bring you? What if you, listen, I love pastoring you guys, but I watch the painful part of shepherding is watching when someone just pushes God away and forgets him, forgets his love for them, forgets his work in them, and they chase after their sin, which leads to emptiness. It leads to pain, and, and pain not just in your own life, but in the life of the people who, the lives of the people who love you, and in, in a lot of people, are, it causes disaster. What if you could be spared that? That's what he's saying. If you think of the cycle, God has given you a way to skip the disaster, to reverse the cycle, and it's to go back around to remembering your deliverer and how helpless you are. And that's what these disciplines of remembrance do. Listen, we gotta keep going. It's now time for the main event. Verse 12, you ready for this? No, you're not. Watch this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Keeps happening. Here's what happens. Othniel the judge dies. And when the judge dies, Israel drifts back into their sin. That, by the way, that happens. That's the story of judges. The ju even the best judge, Othniel's the best one. He's the, the one with the least flaws. What happens? He dies. We need a judge who doesn't die. Last week. All right, here we go. Which leads to, he gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel. Even sounds like an evil name, Eglon. Because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. This is important. City of Palms, that's Jericho. That's an iconic, deeply symbolic point of victory from Israel's past. All right, it's like um, I, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, okay? Um, we had a football team, all right? It's not like we had a great football team. We had a football team. We'd go to the games and stuff and cheer them on. And our rivals, NC State, right? So there was a game where NC State came and they were playing in Keenan Stadium there in Chapel Hill, all right? Big rivalry game between two very average teams, all right? So we're duking it out, playing for, you know, seventh place in the Coastal or whatever it is. And um, as we're playing, uh, the game's pretty close, but at the end of the game, NC State wins. And so we're kind of bummed out, you know? But then, here's what happened. The NC State fans rushed our field. And we were like, no. So, of course, we counter-rush, right? I guess that's what you call it. I don't know. So we rush, too. But the problem that we didn't think about was um, that if you're an away game fan, that means, like, you really care, you know? And there's a bunch of big country boys that went to NC State. And so uh, we, we kind of ran away, you know, after, and we lost. NC State not only won the game, they won the field. And that was painful for us, right? We walked back in shame. And that's what you have here with Israel happening in this moment, is this feeling of shame because now a foreign king has taken a spot that's deeply important and symbolic in their history. And then what does it say? Verse 14, the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. And then 
after 18 years, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. That's the helplessness, right, in the cycle. And he raised up Ehud, son of Gerah, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. Left-handed. Told you we'd get there. Most likely this means this guy was disabled, potentially deformed somehow on his right arm and hand. And listen, his society, everybody in it, Israel, the Moabites, are all going to look down on his disability, even more than anything someone who's disabled would experience today. Nobody from Israel would have followed him, and nobody in Eglon's court would have been scared of him. And that's the guy God chooses. You got to watch that. A weak, disabled man. Verse 15 keeps going. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Now, tribute is not the male and female from District 12, all right? Tribute is the tax that Eglon made the tribes pay as he ruled over them. And tribute was most likely, it probably wasn't money, it's was probably produce. That's why um, Ehud's gonna go with like a whole crew of people to deliver this. He's bringing the goods to the oppressive king. 16, Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long and he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes like a boss where no one would see it because they only expected you to strap your weapon to your left thigh because you're right-handed pulling it this way. But he's strapping it over here so nobody's gonna think to look. Verse 17, and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab who was an extremely fat man. That's important, okay? You'll see why. Verse 18, when Ehud finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. Now, and then at the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. And the king said, silence. And all his attendants left him. Now, you might be thinking, why would the king send all of his people away? It's because of who the messenger was, right? Ehud was weak. Disabled, he posed no threat to the king. O King Eglon the Hutt was not intimidated by Ehud. So verse 20 Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. That's the temperature, okay? Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. The king stood up from his throne. Verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. You catch what's happening? The unsuspecting, disabled guy has dealt a fatal blow to the powerful, oppressive king. For the third time in this chapter, his weakness was not only his greatest strength, it was all of Israel's greatest strength. Verse 22, even the handle went in after the blade and Eglon's fat closed in over it so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. You know when you're in the dentist chair and they give you that suction stick and you're like putting it in your mouth to get out the mouthwash and then you close your mouth over it? That's the sound that I'm imagining right now. It's like, you know what I mean? I just want y'all to be in the scene, okay? That's all I'm trying to do here, right? There's a reason he's giving us this. And then the next words, the waste came out. Now waste is our English translators trying to sanitize this for us. The word is dung. The dung came out. First time I ever reenacted a Bible story on my own. Like, you know, I was a 10 years old. I read this, came running to my parents. I was like, do you know this was in the Bible? Right? And I was like, I never heard this in Sunday school, which made total sense. Can you imagine some of your parents going to pick up your kids this morning? What'd you learn about? Oh, this hero stabbed this mega fat guy. A poop went everywhere. See my picture? Like, 
That seemed like a, a thing that we're trying, what, where am I at? I know, some of y'all, some of y'all are newer to the Bible, you're like, where am I? Listen, I don't know if somebody ever told you God's word is boring, it's anything but that. Onward, verse 23, Ahud escapes by way of the porch, closing, locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ahud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. Why did they think that? Because it smelled like that, right? But then the servants waited until they became embarrassed, you know. Like for the beginning, they probably thought, you know, they're telling jokes to one another, like drawing poop emojis in the sand or whatever it is. But then they're like, this is getting awkward. We got to go in there. So they took the key, opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. So Ahud goes back to the Israelites, and now that he's killed their oppressor, now the Israelites are ready to follow him. And so they go to war against the Moabites. Fast forward down to verse 30. Moab became subject to Israel that day. And the land had peace for 80 years. End of awesome story. Now, I showed you three different times in chapter three. The author is making a point to bring our attention to this idea that weakness really is our greatest strength. What I want to do now is show you a couple of spiritual truths that come off of that, that we see in all of scripture for how we apply this reality that weakness is indeed our greatest strength. And here's the first one. Jesus our deliverer, he chose weakness. As the weeks in this series progress, you're gonna see that these judges, they, they become more flawed and flawed. I told you before the judges, there were Joshua, awesome guy. Othniel, really, was our, he's the best guy we're gonna see. He was able to rally all 12 tribes to go to battle. But then you have Ahud, who's weak. And he's weak because he's disfigured. And Israel, listen, they learn how to follow someone that they didn't think they could follow. Deborah's gonna be next. She's gonna only be able to rally with all of her efforts two tribes out of the 12 to go and fight. Then Gideon comes next. He is a wreck. He is unable to trust God. He tests God way too much. And then after that, he's only able to rally one tribe around him. But then what does God do? God whittles that one little army even further down to 300 so that victory can only belong to the Lord. God takes his weak army and shows great strength. How else could it happen unless it was the work of the Lord? Let's not even get into Samson, who was morally weak, yet God used him to save his people. Then there's King David, who's going to come after the judges. Who is he? The weakest of all of his brothers. A little shepherd boy, and God used a weak little shepherd boy to rescue Israel from a giant enemy named Goliath. Do you see, look, all of the Old Testament is a big, all these heroes, it's a big giant signpost pointing you towards what the savior of the world is actually going to be like. This is Isaiah 50, uh, 53, two and three. He didn't have an impressive form, talking about Jesus, or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. See, in these narratives, God is showing the world that salvation's not coming through some kind of triumphal political giant. It's gonna come from an outsider born in a manger, through weakness, not what the world calls strength, through defeat, 
on a cross, not what the world calls victory, through folly, not what the world calls wisdom. And our danger is responding to Jesus just like Eglon responded to Ehud. Listen, Ehud surprised Eglon, and just like that, Jesus' resurrection surprised everybody around him. The Roman leaders, Jewish leaders who conspired to have him killed, they thought it was finished when they sealed the tomb. But then Jesus, a lowly carpenter's son who had died a criminal's death, showed power that they didn't realize he had, the power to defeat death itself. Y'all, the big warning here in Judges is that a lot of people can miss the salvation God is bringing because it doesn't fit the form that they were expecting. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, the gospel is foolishness. For the Jews asked for signs, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 1. They wanted a political ruler who would come in and take over. The Greeks seek wisdom. They wanted a great philosopher who would reign on high with his wisdom. But what does Paul say? We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Y'all, no other religion treats their savior this way. Where their, their savior dies a criminal's death on a cross? How humiliating. The gospel is wisdom, but it's not what you'd expect. Nobody expected the savior of the world to die on a cross. And Jesus is still troubling people today. Uh, you hear this, think about it when people say, how could a loving, a loving God let suffering happen like he does? Why do they say that? Because they expect the kind of savior who will end their physical suffering. But listen, God saw a deeper need than fixing temporary pain, and so he sent Jesus not to relieve physical pain on earth, but to defeat death itself. So now even when cancer rages in our bodies and threatens to take our life, we can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? You don't have victory over me because my Savior didn't just come to fix temporary suffering. He came to defeat death itself. And because he got up out of the grave, when I believe in what he did for me, I have victory over the grave as well. That's stronger. But it's not what we expect. He humbled himself. Philippians 2. I ain't got time to preach a sermon on Philippians 2 right now. But listen. Philippians, you should read your Bible, it's awesome. Philippians 2 is gonna say, it's gonna say he humbled himself, weakness, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is a weak criminal that died on a cross? No, that he's Lord. See, his apparent weakness was for us so that we might share in the strength that he has as Lord over all. Here's the second truth we see today. We can only receive salvation through the weakness of faith. Y'all remember the cycle of sin when both in Othniel and with Ehud, Israel got to a point where they were just outright enslaved and they needed saving, they needed rescuing. Y'all, this is in the Bible on repeat precisely to depict our relationship to God and our relationship to sin. We are God's people, but we are, if you have never received God's gift of salvation, you are enslaved to sin, and you need rescuing. You can't rescue yourself. How do you get free? I mean, people try different things. Religious people try to be moral enough that they'll earn God's approval, kind of like there's some sort of report card. You do enough good things that when you get to heaven, God will look and he'll check you off and give you admittance into heaven. 
And that leads you right into good day, bad day Christianity that will exhaust you for the rest of your life. Non-religious people try to find the sense of acceptance and fulfillment too. Just in other places, I read an excerpt from a, a book that's coming out in like three, four weeks. Um, it's by Lisa Brennan Jobs, the daughter of Steve Jobs. And she was talking about, the whole book just talks about her growing up with Steve Jobs as her dad. It was on Vanity Fair. She talks about how she would tell her friends in like elementary, middle school that she had a secret, that Steve Jobs was her dad. She loved to play that card whenever, whenever she could because it gave her validation when the real truth was her dad was never really around. She saw her dad once a month. He refused to pay child support until he made his elementary age daughter take a paternity test to prove that she was actually his. Imagine the pain that that brought her. She kept anticipating time together with him, hoping that maybe this time he'd give her some showering of love that he'd just been withholding. And time after time, he'd just stonewall her. And on his deathbed, she realized she was never gonna get the acceptance of her father that she wanted. Y'all, that's the story of so many people. So many people. If only my parents would love me. I have watched guys climb to the top of their industry, hoping that at the top of that ladder is their dad finally approving of them. Y'all, you were never meant to be fulfilled by your mom or dad's love for you. That was only meant to be. It was supposed to come to you, but as a placeholder to train you what to look for, but the real thing you were to be looking for was fulfillment from God's love for you that will always satisfy your soul. So even if you didn't get it in your parents, like Jobs' daughter, you can still find it in God himself and what he's done for you. That's what we look for. Look, people look for it in money, in leisure, in power. Why? Because it's the places you'd expect to find salvation. But instead, you find enslavement. But that's not how you get, not how you get salvation. It's not something you earn. It's not a place that you ascend to. Righteousness, meaning fulfillment, they're a search for salvation. But salvation, true salvation, is a gift. It's a gift. And the only thing you can do with a gift, you kind of got to, Open yourself to receive it, which is a posture of weakness. I mean, you get what I'm saying? Like, you don't have your defenses up. To receive a gift, you kind of have to open yourself to it. My son had his 10th birthday party yesterday, and he's getting these gifts from his friends. And what does he have to do? He has to kind of say, thank you, and open himself in a vulnerable position in order to receive it. And that's faith. Opening yourself, being willing to receive what God is offering you. Have you ever received God's salvation? If not, you can do it today. It's a gift, no work required, just receiving it. And listen, if you have received that salvation before, it means you can trust him in your battle now. Because think about this, if saving your life from eternal death, separation from God, if saving you came out of his strength, why would you think that sustaining your life is gonna come from your own strength? Trust him in your battle now, in the weakness of faith. The posture of faith that says, I can't, but God can. Trusting a God you can't see, that's actually where you'll find your greatest strength. That leads me to my last point. God does his greatest work through weak people. They're weak people. The author wants us to see that Ahud is flawed. God didn't need Ahud's ability. He wanted his willingness. In fact, he wanted his weakness so that he could... Make sure that everybody knew it was God doing the work and not him. He loves using weak, 
willing people to accomplish his purposes. Look, think about this. Nobody in the New Testament was really that awesome. A lot of people with a lot of flaws, except for one, whose name was group participation. Right! That, there's a point behind that. That God wants you to make sure you know, don't be like one of these guys because they're all messed up. Instead, look to Christ for strength. In fact, Paul says this. Um, this is 2 Corinthians 12. It's an awesome spot here. Paul says, for if I want to boast, this is verse 6, I wouldn't be a fool because I'd be telling the truth, but I'll spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of those extraordinary revelations. There's some people talking about some wild dreams that they had. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. He's talking about God allowing him to suffer. A messenger of Satan is what he calls this thorn, to torment me so that I would not exalt myself, so I wouldn't get puffed up. Concerning this thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. You ever done that? God, I'm tired of the suffering. I'm tired of going through this. Will you please let it leave me? But what did God say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, in response to what God has said to him, I'll most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. Why? Because there, so that Christ's power might reside in me. <laughs> Even to the point where he says, I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. When I get those at me for the sake of Christ, why? Because when I am weak, then I'm strong. That's the gospel message. So my question to you is, what weakness have you been carrying around? Maybe, maybe you've been hiding it so no one can see it, and you're trying to act like it doesn't exist. Maybe you've been defining yourself by it. Listen, it's meant to point you to your need for Christ, because Christ can save you, Christ can sustain you, and Christ will use what you think is your weakness to put his strength, his power, and his glory on display through you. And maybe you need victory over sin for the first time today, and beginning today, going on for every day, you can cry out to him and receive that. I think about mercy's Mercy as a church, our moment right now, we're like five weeks going to two locations instead of one location for worship. Y'all, we are not taking this step because we believe, oh man, we are such an awesome, strong church. I, I spend a lot of time just trying not to think about it. And I'm, I'm pretty scared, right, and nervous about this. I have plenty of fears around it, but then I think, you know what? We believe God uses weak people like us to accomplish his purposes, so we're gonna take a big leap and if this thing works, it is only gonna be because of the grace of God, which means his glory gets put on display through us and I can get behind that. Yo, our big idea for today, weakness, weakness, that's our greatest strength. 